in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we are looking particularly this morning at verses 10 through 12 at the final beatitude. We'll conclude our study of the beatitudes today. We are in a study of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the first section being called the Beatitudes because of these various statements of blessing or the, uh, the blessedness of these various, uh, those who possess these qualities, Beatus, or where the word Beatitude comes from, Beatus in Latin. Uh, and we have said that these qualities taken together form something of a portrait of the genuine Christian character, genuine Christian life. We'll read the entirety of the Beatitudes, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let us pray. Father, we turn our attention to your word and we submit to it as that which has been breathed out by you. This is your word. And Father, we pray that as we attend to it now, that by your grace we would believe in the Savior it proclaims and we would submit our hearts to its teaching in glad obedience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I suspect that you have some sense of ambivalence about this whole subject of persecution, especially as Christians living in the United States, living in the Western world. On the one hand, If you've read the Bible much at all, you know how it describes the persecution of the godly in both Old and New Testaments. You know, perhaps, if you studied church history at all, uh, stories of those who have been faithful to Christ, even at the cost of their own lives, the shedding of their own blood. It seems like such a common thing. 
until perhaps we look at our own experience and in relation to our lives, in relationship to what we do every day, the idea of persecution seems to take on something of an air of unreality, almost surreal, this, this whole idea that we would be persecuted for Christ. And yet, for the Christian, it is to be anything but surreal, anything but something alien to our existence. And in fact, that it is included in the Beatitudes should tell us that persecution is, in fact, a normal part of the Christian life. It is a normal part of the Christian experience. After all, as we've said all along in our study of these Beatitudes, Every one of these is to be seen to some degree in the Christian believer. It's not as though as Christians we could decide, well, I would like to be, uh, I'd like to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm not, not much for meekness. Let's say I would like to be a merciful person, but I'm not very pure in heart. We can't pick and choose. Uh, it's, it's like the Ten Commandments. It's not eight out of ten, your choice. With the Beatitudes, this is a whole picture of the Christian's character, the Christian's being. And as we've said, this isn't something Jesus is saying to do. Be meek, be poor in spirit, be merciful. He's saying blessed are those of whom these things are true, namely those who have come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Now we have also said that uh, each of these is within the believer, the seed of each of these qualities, and we do have the responsibility to nurture them, to pray for them, to cultivate them in our lives. And as we've gone through this study, perhaps you've examined, I hope you've examined your own life uh, in, in light of these things and said, which of these is blooming? Which of these is thriving and growing and evident in my life? Which of these is less evident? Which of these do I need to pray for? and perhaps repent of sins and seek to cultivate these qualities in my life. But again, they are a whole. As Christians, every one of them should be evident to some degree in our lives. But then we come to this last beatitude. It's different for a couple of reasons. For one thing, it's not describing so much a quality within us or an expression of that quality in our actions. It's describing something that happens to us. I think it's no accident that it follows upon verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, As we saw last time, it is our desire as believers, as Paul instructs us, as far as it depends on us to live peaceably with all. But the reality is, despite our efforts to live at peace with all, there will be those who will not have peace, and there will be those who will respond with indifference at best, hostility at worst to us. And this beatitude addresses those who will not live at peace with a Christian in their midst. It's also different because it has verses 11 and 12. Uh, As you noted, each of these verses is fairly brief. It states, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, quality, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that thing in which their blessedness consists. 
Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will experience the comfort of Christ himself, the comfort of God himself. Well, this one has an elaboration. Verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He goes on to elaborate, to explain. And not only so, but in doing so, he speaks to his disciples in the second person. He's not talking about someone now. He's talking to his disciples. And through scripture, he's talking to you. He's talking directly to me. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all all kinds of evil against you. You see, this becomes very personal because Jesus knew full well what his disciples were going to face. And he elaborates on this last beatitude personally, directly, to encourage them and to prepare them. Well, then as we examine the teaching of these verses, we want to look at it in three parts, going to divide it up into three parts to organize it, think about it. In the first place, we want to think some about the reasons for persecution. The reasons for persecution. Um, First of all, more broadly, theologically. Why is there persecution at all? Why have God's people experienced persecution at all? After all, a Christian, if he's faithfully living out the Christian life, is a a loving person, a gracious person, a kind person, a meek person, a forgiving person. Why this hostility? Why this persecution at all? Well, the answer to that lies back uh, in Genesis chapter 3. Why is there persecution? Well, we find it in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15, as the Lord speaks to the serpent, having uh, led Eve and through her Adam into transgression against God's law, the Lord God, speaking to the serpent, says, I will put enmity, that is hostility, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this verse is sometimes called the Proto-Evangel, the first gospel. And it really is. It it points forward to that victory of the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, over Satan himself when he died on the cross. Yes, Christ was bruised. He seemed defeated. He seemed lost. And yet the moment of his defeat was the very moment of his triumph over Satan, breaking his power, breaking the hold of sin on those who would believe in him. But we need to go back. Before we jump to that epic moment on Calvary when Christ died for his sheep and look at everything that's happened from this point in Genesis 3 until then, as well as from the cross to the present day. You'll notice in our Old Testament reading, we read from chapter 4, and we see what the Lord said fulfilled in the next chapter when Cain leads his brother out into the field and murders him. I mean, no sooner has sin come into the world that Adam and Eve are alienated from each other, they're alienated from God, and their firstborn son murders, kills their secondborn son. Now, you may know there's a lot of discussion over exactly what it was with Cain and his offering that was not pleasing to God. 
whereas Abel's was. I don't think it had to do with the fact that Cain's offering was vegetable while Abel's offering was animal. Uh, In fact, Hebrews simply refers to Abel's faith. It seems that there was something interior in Abel's heart that commended him and his offering to God that was missing in his brother Cain. But from that point on, that enmity of which God spoke in Genesis 3 has been manifest, that hostility between the line of the serpent and the line of the woman, the fallen line and the godly line in God's grace. And you see that played out throughout the Old Testament. You certainly see it, of course, at the cross. You see it played out ever since when people are persecuted for being Christians. Now, practically, why are we persecuted? Well, look at what the verse says. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, there's a sense in which I should repent for the title of the sermon that I printed in this bulletin because it's possibly misleading. Blessed are the persecuted. Well, yes and no. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted, Jesus says, on my account. You see, Jesus is not pronouncing as experiencing his blessing those who are persecuted for other reasons. There are people, Christians included, who receive the opposition and hostility of other people not for righteousness' sake, but because they've made themselves obnoxious. They've provoked antagonism. There's a a humorous uh, example of this, a classic story written by Joseph Bailey, uh, published back in 1966, called The Gospel Blimp. Uh, And and well-meaning believers got together and they, they got this blimp. And they decided to evangelize their town by driving the blimp over the town and dropping bombs, which consisted of tracts and evangelistic uh, booklets on the people of the town. Well, the people put up with this, tolerated the the litter uh, around the streets, the yards. Occasionally someone would pick one up and read it. Well, the Christians running the gospel blimp decided that they weren't reaching people as effectively as they could be, so they installed speakers, loudspeakers on the blimp. And would drive the blimp around town with this gospel message blaring loudly uh, at anyone within earshot. Uh, and so this, this eyesore, the litter, turned into an earsore, the, the loud noise broadcasting the gospel. And one night, the, uh, some of the townspeople went and sabotaged the blimp, destroyed the sound system on the blimp. And the Christians saw what happened. And uh, they, they, they counted this as persecution. Well, if it was, it was well-deserved because they were making themselves a stench and everyone's nostril in the town. They weren't sharing the gospel in, in a Christ-like way. They were simply being obnoxious. Uh, Jesus does not pronounce a blessing on those who are persecuted for becoming fanatics 
Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests that uh, Jesus is not pronouncing a blessing on those who are persecuted in the course of pursuing a cause. Uh, And the cause may be a good one. It may be taking up the banner of the pro-life movement. It might be uh, entering into debate over creation and evolution and intelligent design and all kinds of things uh, in which there might be some pretty severe give and take uh, in the intellectual realm. He does not pronounce blessing on those Christians who get involved in politics and therefore face opposition on others of a different political persuasion or view or party. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Or, as he puts it later, on my account. Those who are persecuted simply because... They are identified with Jesus because they are connected to Jesus through the Holy Spirit by their faith and because their life then shows the character, the likeness of Jesus in the way that they live, in the way that they interact with other people. What does that righteousness consist of? Well, we could say, first of all, it consists in the very qualities we've been studying in the Beatitudes. It consists... uh, of the pattern of the Christian life that's unfolded for us, as Lord willing, we'll see, in the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. It consists in, we might say, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, and the rest of those qualities that are enumerated there. But why would that bring persecution? Jesus explains it. John chapter 15 Verse 18, this is what he said. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Puritan John Flavel, commenting on that that connection of the believer with Christ, sharing in his suffering, said, Who more innocent than Christ? And who more persecuted? The world is the world still. In other words, the world hasn't changed since it nailed Christ on that cross and its hatred of him and its desire to be rid of him. The world is the world still. And when it sees Christ in you, it will respond with enmity. It will, because the world is the world still. It hasn't changed. The character of Christ hasn't changed. And if the character of Christ is seen in you and me today, the world will react to it negatively. Why? Because the world in its sin, in its love of sin, hates righteousness. Righteousness threatens it. Righteousness exposes it. That's why the scribes and Pharisees hated Jesus. He laid them bare. He opened them up. He showed them for what they were, whitewashed tombs, a veneer of righteousness 
with a heart of absolute wickedness. And they were uncomfortable, and they hated him, and they wanted to be rid of him. Well, it's the same way today. The righteousness of Christ in the Christian continues to provoke and expose the world, and it responds to it. And so those are the reasons for persecution. Theologically, that enmity between the line of the serpent and the line of the woman, the line of the devil, the line of Christ, <clears throat> and then practically uh, the righteousness of Christ in us. Well, then let's look at the nature of this persecution. What about it? What is it like? What does it entail? First place, uh, this persecution is inevitable. Verse 11. Blessed are you if others revile you and persecute you. Is that what it says? No. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see, this is assumed as part of the experience of the Christian. And several scripture references would serve to confirm this. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, we read of Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey in uh, Lystra and Derby, going around, it says, they went strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, that statement is made more poignant if you look at it in its context, where Paul is speaking in Derby, and he refers to this in the words that we read earlier, his words to Timothy. Uh, that just before that, in the city of Lystra, Paul, preaching the gospel, had been stoned and dragged outside the city and left for dead. Imagine how sore, how bruised his body must have been after that. No doubt still bearing the bruises on his body as he shared with these people, saying that through many tribulations, and he himself was exhibit A, we must enter the kingdom of God. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you a gift that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then the statement we read earlier from 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, where Paul says, Indeed, after reflecting on his own suffering, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be. Not probably will be. But simply will be. Now, you may be thinking, well, you know, it's been a while since somebody's thrown rocks at me for being a Christian. Uh, been a while since I was dragged outside Duluth or Sugar Hill or Swanee, wherever it might be, and left on the side of the road dead, assumed dead or dying at the very least. Maybe that would give rise to the thought, well, am I even a Christian? And that's a very good thought to have. Because Paul admonishes us to test ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. And we can always do well to go back and say, okay, if my life doesn't match with what the Scriptures tell me here, Am I even truly a Christian to begin with? A good question, but let's assume for the moment that it's fairly answered yes. There are reasons that you have uh, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and you see evidence of his work in your life and you have a love for Christ and his word and his people. And by the test of scripture, you can sincerely answer, yes, I believe I'm in Christ. 
Well, that leads us to the second thing we need to consider here that Jesus touches on in this verse. Not only is persecution inevitable, but in the forms it takes, it is varied. It is varied. Verse 11 tells us that. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus refers first here to being reviled or insulted for being a Christian. Perhaps it was to your face. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe someone was telling a joke about you and you never heard it and didn't even know about it. That's possible. Persecute uh, is the second word Jesus uses here. Uh, The word in its basic idea means to pursue, to seek after. What better picture do we have of Saul of Tarsus before he was converted before Christ met him on the road to Damascus, while he was on that road seeking after, pursuing the believers in other places to arrest them and even to have them put to death. But certainly persecution, uh, harassment, even physical attacks, even death itself, and saying all kinds of evil against you falsely, uh, or slander, we might say, might be another form of persecution that Jesus refers to here. Not every form even that Jesus refers to here involves the shedding of your blood or the beating up of your body. Persecution can often take a verbal form. It might be a whisper campaign. It could be the thoughts and attitudes of someone's own, someone else's heart toward you as a believer that you might not see, and maybe no one else even knows about, but God sees it, and God's aware that that person despises you because of your Christian faith. It could come from classmates, it could come from co-workers, it could come from neighbors, it could come, uh, tragically, as church history has shown, even from those who act in the name of Christ or act on behalf of the church, yet showing nothing of Christ, even as they, in the name of Christ, persecute those who truly are Christ's. What a tragedy! And yet, and yet that happens and has happened. So persecution can be very much varied. And reality is, if you have any interaction with the world and there's any of the righteousness of Christ in you that either is proactive or maybe even reacting, someone's trying to get you to do something that's wrong and you say, no, I cannot do that, there will be persecution in one form or Another. Now, we're blessed to live in the West and in the United States. It has been so strongly influenced by Christianity and by the Protestant Reformation that we have been fairly, at least outwardly and overtly, exempt from much of the vicious persecution that believers have experienced in many parts of the world through history and even in parts of the world today. Even brutal uh, persecution, torture, killing, even in the world today. However, you know as well as I do that it seems that there is an increasing intolerance toward righteousness, toward what is right. We live in a society where in many ways what is evil is called good and what is good is called evil. And so how much longer that will be the case as uh, in many ways our society sheds its Reformation clothing and inheritance uh, remains to be seen. Uh, But we've been free from physical persecution for the most part, although... The world is the world still, even in the U.S. of A., and uh, throughout its history there have been Christians who have suffered one form of persecution or another and certainly will until Christ comes back. 
Well, those are the forms that it takes. And it may be that when you look at the varied forms of persecution that you may can look back on your life and seeing whether from family or from friends or coworkers or someone else a negative attitude toward you or negative actions or words toward you because of your faith in Jesus. Well, then there's the last thing to consider here, and that is the joy in persecution. Now, there's some sense of incongruity in many of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't seem to go together. Perhaps the most is uh, most incongruous is uh, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Happy to be congratulated or envied are those who mourn. Because in this case, those who mourn over their sins and drives them to the cross. But perhaps none of these is so much so as the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, we need to get something straight right away. The Christian is not rejoicing in the fact of persecution itself. That would be wrong. (coughs) That would be twisted. Because it means that we're rejoicing over the expression of someone else's sin, over someone's reaction negatively toward Christ. And who could rejoice over that? That's wrong. Who could rejoice over the pain caused by this hostility to Christ? No one. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. But he does give us several reasons that we should respond to persecution with joy. Now, we'll leave for another time later in the Sermon on the Mount how it is that we are to respond toward those who are hostile toward us. And Jesus teaches a great deal on that later in the Sermon on the Mount, how we're to respond to those who have positioned themselves as our enemies. But for now, there are, it seems, three things that Jesus mentions here that can produce joy in us in the face of persecution. First of all, uh, persecution indicates our possession of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, persecution is a great indicator that you're a Christian. Look what Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And with that, we come full circle. First beatitude also said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they belong to the kingdom. They're believers. They're Christians. No mere superficial, surface-only believer is going to be willing to lose much for the sake of a Jesus he really does not love and believe in. It's a trial by fire. It tests the gold and finds it genuine. And so you can rejoice if people persecute you and are hostile to you for righteousness' sake that they see enough of Jesus in you to attack you. It's an indication that you are a member of the kingdom of heaven. There's another reason for joy, and Jesus mentions this in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. We're saved by grace, and we don't earn merit points with God because we're willing to suffer persecution. We're saved by the Lord Jesus, who suffered a persecution far more severe and deep than you or I ever will, and who suffered the wrath of his Father, which by his grace you and I who believe in him never will. Nevertheless, there is reward promised to those who are faithful to Christ in the midst of a fiery trial, literally, even metaphorically. 
But there's nothing wrong with that, with rejoicing in that. It said in, in Hebrews, it tells us that even Jesus himself, for the joy set before him, for what he was to receive, despised the cross, scorning its shame, was willing to go through with the crucifixion because of what lay ahead of him on the other side of that experience. And so there's nothing wrong with us as Christians to take joy, even in the pain of persecution, knowing that our Father notices, he sees, he knows. As he said of his people suffering in Egypt, I know. Well, he knows when his people suffer for righteousness' sake, who suffer on account of him, and their reward is great in heaven. There's another reason Jesus lists for joy and persecution here. Not only that we possess the kingdom, not only that there is reward for those who are faithful in persecution, faithful to Christ, but we also are identified with a long line of God's saints, God's people. We read earlier of Abel. We could say, really, that Abel was the first martyr, the first one who was put to death because of righteousness' sake. His brother could have repented. His brother could have said, Well, Lord, I'm sorry. What do I need to do to be right with you? God warned him since crouching at the door. You need to master it or it's going to get you. Well, it got him. And he murdered his brother as a result. Abel commended for his faith, dying for righteousness' sake. Well, he was only the first of many. You go through the Old Testament, the New Testament, think of Daniel, uh, a man who suffered simply because he refused to commit idolatry and basically suffered because of his integrity generally. Uh, through the New Testament, Stephen, Acts chapter 7, uh, and then as uh, we read, uh, James, uh, the son of Zebedee, put to death, and uh, Peter and Paul, as church tradition has it, uh, Paul beheaded under Nero, Peter, as tradition has it, not the scriptures, persecuted uh, by being uh, uh, crucified uh, upside down by Peter's own request, to Tyndale, Huss, uh, Latimer and Ridley, and the line goes on. Uh, he mentions the prophets. Think of uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, read of his tears, his suffering, his mistreatment at the hands of those to whom he preached the gospel, preached good news. You can take joy in suffering for the sake of Christ because you stand in the train of a great, great line of people from Abel to the present day who are willing to love the Lord Jesus Christ even at the cost of their earthly life. And so we can rejoice not because of persecution necessarily, but in persecution because it testifies that we are Christ's and the world sees Christ in us because our reward in heaven is great and because we are among a crowd of great, worthy believers who have followed Christ and suffered for his sake. Not all were martyrs, by the way, who suffered terribly for being Christians, for being Christ's, but certainly many did shed their own blood in faithfulness to Christ. Well, persecution is not something that we should seek. It's not something you go out looking for, not something you go out hoping for. But by the same token, in faithfulness to Christ, neither is it something that we should uh, try to avoid. It's not something that we should be fearful of. Jesus says to us, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, 
Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So we fear God. Fear God, not man. Everything else will take care of itself if you fear God, not man. Our attitude should be that of Paul, who said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, first of all, that we live in a society where by law we have freedom to meet as we have here on Sunday morning and gather to worship and pray to you and sing your praises without fear of the police arresting us. We thank you for that. Thank you for that heritage. Thank you for that blessing that you have given to us, even as many of your people in the world do not enjoy that, even on this Lord's Day, meeting secretly, meeting with people watching out, thank you for that and yet Lord we also recognize that with the blessing there is something of a loss a softness a comfortable ease in Zion Lord forgive us if we love our comfort and our security and our ease more than we love Christ we pray O oh God to be faithful we pray O oh God to be Christ-like. And we pray to respond not with grumbling, bitterness, anger, but with joy when the world hates us, when the world hates Christ in us. Give us grace to be faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.